You probably know someone who works in a hospital, a relative, a friend, a roommate, or you may work in a hospital yourself. Our nation's heroes have been working at breakneck speed for the past year and have faced countless challenges and hardships. Expert in resilience training and professor of clinical psychiatry and pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, Dr. Brenda Birch has been at the forefront of addressing the mental health and emotional well-being challenges our frontline workers in the hospital are facing. In this episode, Brenda shares tips on how we can boost our own resilience and reveals the science behind storytelling as a way to integrate our emotions with our memories. Join us for a conversation about supporting our frontline workers and build our own gratitude, empathy, and finding glee in the future. So Brenda, it's so great to have you join us today to chat about the challenges our frontline workers are facing. And I'd like to have a conversation about these challenges and how we should be thinking moving forward. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Just such a privilege to have you here. I've known you for over a decade, maybe two. You always have keen insights into so many different settings. And this setting uh, that we're talking about are the frontline workers. And that would entail not only health professionals, but also people that are keeping the engine going, not only at UCLA, but across the country. So getting right into it, what do you think are some of the main challenges our frontline workers in the hospital are facing today? Well, having just come through our biggest surge over the last year, I can say that many of our health professionals are utterly exhausted at this point in time. What they've faced has been unprecedented in their careers, even for people who've worked in the hospital for decades in terms of how much trauma, death, change in normal routines um, they've had to cope with. And even those providers who are not necessarily directly working with our COVID patients have really had to be flexible and change a lot in what they do as well. And many of those individuals feel a sense of helplessness too. So there's almost like some survivor guilt for not having been on the front line for those who are not you know, in those situations in the emergency department or our ICUs that really took the biggest brunt of the surge. Yeah. Explain to me what survivor guilt means, because I think other people, not even on the front lines, have a sense of guilt that they aren't able to contribute. What does that mean? Right. So, you know, even this week, I was talking to someone who was, you know, working in our hospital setting with very, very ill patients, but still felt that there was more that he could have done to help his colleagues who were taking on so many COVID patients and, you know, experiencing so many patient deaths um, over and over and over again. And so what I mean by survivor guilt is just this sense of, you know, it should have been me, you know, it could have been me, I should have been able to do more. And so a sense of helplessness that comes along with that as well as some guilt. So, you know, when I think about those, like the person I spoke to this last week, who feel like they've not done enough, you know, those who feel that it should have been them caring for COVID patients in the ICU, I sometimes think of a sports analogy. So, for example, on a basketball team, you have starters and you have bench players and you have all of the professionals who support those players. And then you have the organizational and the league-wide rules and requirements that kind of 
direct the overall direction of the activity of everybody else. To win a championship or to beat COVID, we need all of these pieces to be operational. And they all have to be coordinated with each other and they all have to be focused on the same goal. We tend to focus on those starters. You know, they're the ones who are observably critical to the win. But, you know, equally critical even if they're less observable, are the rest of the players and the support staff. If they weren't doing their jobs and ready to fill in when asked to do so, like when someone became ill or injured, then we would have been in a much worse situation. They might have made different types of sacrifices, but it's important that we recognize and value the sacrifices that they did make. Of course, you know this analogy falls short in that our frontline professionals have been exposed to higher levels of stress and trauma than many others. But even given this, you know, no health professional or support staff has been unimportant to the efforts to combat COVID during the pandemic. And those people who still have some capacity and a desire to do more will play a profoundly important role during the recovery. And so what my biggest suggestion is, is to find ways to emotionally support your colleagues who have been on the front line. You know, we know from past epidemics and other kinds of disasters that it is likely to take years for people to really, you know, process everything they've been through. There's not been time to do that. And so there's going to be after effects for quite a while, you know, certainly in the next couple of years. And not everybody really wants to hear those stories or is able to hear the stories due to confidentiality. But if you have people on your team or within your profession who you know have gone through a lot, it can be quite helpful for them if you reach out and just ask them if they want to talk about what they've been through. And it's really easy for the listener because it's not about problem solving. It's not about trying to change anything. And the listener doesn't have to do any kind of fancy techniques other than just listen and try to really, really understand what the emotional experience for the person has been and to empathize with that. Mm -hmm. And that's a very powerful intervention that is extremely helpful to people who've gone through something traumatic. Um, To tell your story is very different than just thinking about it in your own head. And we know that to either journal about it or to talk about it out loud allows for the integration of your emotions with your memories, which allows you to process the information in a more efficient and effective manner. So it does help you get through it better to be able to do that with somebody you trust and other health providers. And I mean, when I'm talking about health providers, I'm not talking just about doctors and nurses, but anybody who works in that healthcare setting who interact with health providers or patients or their family members. Those people are in a unique situation to really understand what it's like. You know, I think many health providers feel that they're almost living in a different universe than a lot of people who don't have that type of a job. You know, a lot of people are protected from what's gone on in the hospitals. And so it's hard for them to understand how difficult it's been. You said the word empathize, which I think is a really important distinction between that practicing empathy versus compassion. Empathy is something that we all could practice. Compassion is taking action on it. So what exactly does empathy mean or how do you practice? Well, I think in practice, what it means is communicating to somebody that you get it and not doing that by turning the story onto yourself and telling your own stories necessarily, although sometimes that can be helpful if someone knows you've been through the same thing. But it can be done in a very basic way by just 
repeating something that someone has just told you. You know, I am so depressed. This has been such a difficult thing. You can just say, wow, this has been really difficult for you. And that seems kind of silly in a way. It seems like, well, you're just repeating what I just said. But if you are speaking to somebody, it means that they're paying attention to you. If they are able to say back to you what you've just said, it means they're really paying attention. So at a very basic level, it's communicating very directly, almost like a summary of what you're hearing, especially paying attention to the emotional content of it, Mm -hmm. as opposed to any other kinds of memories or facts. I think that's the easiest and most straightforward way. But of course, you're also expressing empathy in how you are with your nonverbal communication and how engaged you are and um, how much you are focusing attention and not being distracted. If you have had a very similar situation, you know, it can be helpful to share that as long as you don't take over the conversation if your goal is really to support someone else. Well, that kind of practice probably could have been done or should have been done even before COVID. And if you think about, especially with a lot of our healthcare providers, knowing that there's been huge burnout in general. And so how do you find the challenges of the pandemic on top of what was actually already a condition that was happening in our health system relating to emotional well-being? I'm so grateful to you and to others who were able to support some of the work that I I've done over the last five or six years on the topic of provider burnout and trauma because we did have some programs in place already that we've been able to build upon and hopefully we'll continue to do that. But just to give a couple examples, we do have three locations right now where we have peer support programs. So we've, you know, in the emergency department and in anesthesiology and in one of our medical units, we trained about 15% of the providers in those areas on science-based ways to provide support in many, using many of the skills I just talked about, you know, how to reach out to somebody after an adverse event and provide them support, allow them to vent, give them some resources if they want to be hooked up for additional education or services, and also just to provide education on what's normal. And the feedback that we've gotten based on those programs is that it really changes the culture. Even if people don't want to chat about what they've been through, they really appreciate being asked. And it starts to really address some of the stigma associated with mental wellness. You know, we we are in an environment where perfection is valued. You know, we want to be perfect for our patients. And because of that, it makes it really difficult to admit if you're struggling. And, you know, to make that more normal, to be able to talk about the fact that we all struggle and especially among our leaders, to have our leaders share some vulnerability really makes a huge impact on especially younger health providers who might feel intimidated by more senior people. And, you know, by hearing vulnerability or having a program within your department that supports this type of communication it really makes things a lot more transparent and helps people feel more comfortable that their leaders will have empathy for them if they struggle and that it will be safe to bring it up. So I've been very grateful that we had some of that already in place. We've had some resilience training 
programs in place. We'd already developed an app to help our health providers assess how they are feeling and to get immediate feedback and coping skills suggestions, as well as connection to resources within that app. So all of those things were already in place because we already had an issue with, you know, burnout, as as you know, as is true across the entire country. And then once we got hit with COVID, you know, our health system quickly established a COVID mental wellness work group um, led by Dr. Karen Miyoto and with input from professionals from the National Traumatic Stress Network, Bob Pinus and Melissa Breimer, and folks from our staff and faculty counseling center, and others from other locations within the health system that got pulled in specifically for this effort. And then we immediately started training mental health providers on disaster psychiatry interventions so that we could start deploying our own mental health providers to specific units within the hospital and work groups and residency groups so that they could have a go-to embedded person who had some skills and could help them not only process as they go along some of the difficult things they're facing, but also to hook them up with resources and to develop resources as requested. So we've had quite a large group um, effort over the last year to do what we can to provide more immediate support for our health staff. So Brenda, you're pointing out the fact that in any disaster, you really have to be prepared. And you identified some of the areas that you had already been working on that really set the stage for preparedness and then was able to um, augment them and, and branch out according to this particular disasters being the pandemic. You mentioned resiliency and and you're a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences and Pediatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And you're an expert in training in resilience. What does that entail? Well, I'll start with the definition of resilience, which is basically the degree to which one can adapt to and recover from difficult situations. Some of these skills are taught in our families as we're growing up. There's probably some biological contribution to it as well. But thankfully, you can also augment those skills. So we know that there are certain both individual skills and then also organizational efforts that could be made to try to improve one's resilience. You know, what I've done mostly is really focus on the individual. So, you know, I know that the organization is also, you know, looking at policies and procedures and resources and access to care and things like that that are very important. My focus has been mostly on the individual and what the individual can do to try to boost their own resilience. You know, there are a variety of different types of skills that do that. And, you know, the idea from my perspective, is to teach people some of those skills and to recognize that what will feel natural and normal and helpful to people will vary. And, you know, some of them are already good at some of them. And I, like when I'm doing my training, if I can teach one skill that they haven't seen or heard of before, then I'm very happy, you know, because we have a very resilient health force already. They're, you know, they're beleaguered right now, but they're very, very resilient at baseline. So it's really trying to shore up any areas that could be shored up. You know, so at an individual level, 
ironically, one of the most important things is really to think about your support system. We know how incredibly important social support is, helpful social support, you know, because you might have a lot of friends or family and some of them might be really supportive and some of them might not be. They might be more of a drain. So really thinking about who is it that helps me remember who I am? Who is it that helps me feel good and healthy and lifts me up? And if I'm not having as much interaction with those people right now, how can I make that happen? Because that's essential. And so for some people, it's connecting with other people at work who really understand what's going on. And for some people, it also means connecting with people outside of work so that you can have a break. And because we're not being able to see each other as much, it might be setting up regular phone calls or Zooms you know, in a way that you didn't have to before because you would run into each other or you would see each other socially. And then at an individual level, there are so many different things that can be helpful that range from just basically taking basic care of yourself. You know, am I still eating properly? Have I figured out how to move my body even though I am working remotely as an example? Just very basic general health things to things that you can do to regulate your emotions better, to communicate better to give your mind a break from thinking about difficult things all of the time. So for example, one of the the skills that many people have gravitated towards in recent times are mindfulness types of interventions. And there's so many different types you can do. The basic idea though is that you want to try to put yourself in a relaxed, calm state And you don't want to be thinking about things in the past or things in the future. So, you know, if you think about things in the past, we often spend time criticizing ourselves about we could have done something better or why didn't I do it this way or that person aggravated me. And if we're thinking about the future, sometimes we're thinking about, oh, I've got so much work to do and when am I going to fit this in and will I hit this deadline and I'm nervous about that. But if you can try to be present and Instead of using all of those thoughts, try to use your senses to perceive what is right before you in a relaxed state. It gives your mind a break. And we know that mindfulness interventions have all sorts of physical and mental health outcomes that are positive. And, you know, some people say, well, I can't learn to meditate. You know, they associate mindfulness with meditation. And, and you know, it's something you have to practice, but you don't have to do a full-on meditation practice to derive benefit from mindfulness-type exercises. So there's all sorts of other things like, you know, mindful walking or mindful eating. It's about focusing your attention using your senses. What am I smelling? What am I hearing? What am I seeing? And trying to be as present in the moment as you can. And then when you notice your mind going towards the future or the past, just bringing it back to what am I seeing, hearing, smelling, feeling right now? And so there are a variety of ways to do that. But that's, a, that's an example of a popular intervention that does not take that much time, which is really critical. If you're talking about very busy health providers that have, you can't say go to a yoga class. They'll laugh at you. I mean, there's like, that's not possible. That is not going to happen. You have to figure out things that can be done within the workflow that have an outcome, even if you only have five or 10 minutes a day to do it. And that's really what, you know, we've tried to prioritize in terms of our skills training. Brenda, that was really highly informative. And I'm just sort of trying to figure out one, when you're doing your educational or outreach, if a person could even identify one skill that they might not have known about or to practice for resilience, that was a huge success. What skills have you noticed 
have been the most common that people have identified as ways that they could build resilience? I think one of the things that's been the most fascinating to me is that I've been in so many situations over the last year where I'm either teaching resilience or giving some sort of a just processing space opportunity for people or I'm listening to Schwartz rounds where our you know providers are telling their stories and I also do some work in the community and other settings and so it's not always just health providers I'm listening to you know listening to people talk about their own family experiences which the health providers have as well you know family members who've you know had covid or who've died and their child care challenges and like there's so many different things and the thing that has really been notable to me is that no matter how difficult the story is that I'm listening to, by far the most common spontaneous expression of a coping skill that I hear is almost invariably somebody will spontaneously add something that they're grateful for. They will talk about something and I'll say, but at least, you know, I have a job. I am so grateful I have my family. I am so grateful that I have a place to live. I am so grateful for my colleagues. I am so grateful to be working at UCLA. I hear this over and over and over again. And I don't know that people really realize what an important resilience tool that is. But kind of like I was talking about with mindfulness, attentional focus matters. What your brain is paying attention to impacts how you feel. and. You know, we're most of us in the healthcare industry are problem solvers all day long. We're trying to solve problems. And because of that, we get into this, you know, we're perfectionistic. We have to be for our job. So we're always looking for problems. So you kind of puts you in this critical mindset. You know, this is a problem. We have to fix it. Problem, 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 problem. And so to counter that, it's really helpful to spend some time with your brain focused on things that are good and that you are grateful for and that are going well and that are positive to help balance your perception of reality. And, you know, we know um, from research that gratitude practices are very powerful. And so one of the interventions that I sometimes will recommend is that people spend, again, it can be three or five minutes a day doing something to reinforce their focus on what they're grateful for. So that could be sending emails to five people that day that they just really appreciate and just thanking them. It could be writing a list of three things that went really well today. It could be three things, three people you're grateful for. It could be anything that kind of just reminds you about the goodness of what's gone on, silver linings. And, you know, I think nobody had ever imagined in their lifetime they'd be living through something like this. And so I think for many of us, we're really much more appreciative for so many minor things that we never thought we'd lose before, like going to a restaurant, you know, never imagined that we couldn't go to a restaurant for so long or, you know, visiting a family member or, you know, so many things. And so finding gratitude or appreciation for some of those minor things, I am hoping, you know, once we are more opened up that that appreciation will lead to feelings of glee as we're able to be reintroduced to all those things we miss right now. Well, that's a perfect lead into my next question, which is moving forward. What are your recommendations for recovery from this pandemic? Well, I think, um, you know, the first thing that's worthy of saying again is that this is not going to be an on off switch in so many ways. 
the recovery is going to be in fits and starts. People are going to have different levels of comfort and people have had different levels of trauma and loss. And so because of all of those things, it will also take different amounts of time for people to recover. And so I think the first thing is being patient with each other and recognizing that this is going to take some time and being compassionate towards ourselves. Maybe we can't complete as many tasks as we normally can. Maybe we need to revise some of our goals and timelines so that they're a little bit more realistic. But I think in general, making space to tell those stories is going to be an important part of recovery. I hear storytelling a lot in your responses and the power of storytelling is so profound in so many settings. What is it about the storytelling that is so important to you? Well, as I mentioned before, telling uh, one's story is a much more effective and efficient way to process trauma than just sitting with it by yourself. Not only do you derive benefit from that social support, but it also allows you to integrate your emotions with your memories in a way that's helpful and allows you to move forward. When you tell your stories and other people respond to those and you hear other people's stories, you realize you're not alone. We're in this together. And that's another theme that I hear very frequently that, you know, even for people who are not telling their own stories yet, maybe they're not quite ready to, they're hearing others. It's very reassuring. It's like, oh, I'm not the only one struggling. So the more that we can really share all of that with each other, we're creating a culture of support and safety for everybody. I'm thinking, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you want to be resilient before something bad happens, but you can build resilience during the bad event as well. How does storytelling play into building resilience? When terrible things happen that you don't expect, I think that, you know, you discover strengths and skills in yourself that you never thought possible. But we don't have time and we don't make the priority to really think about that and give ourselves credit for that or understand it in a way that allows us to package it for future use. And I think that when you tell your stories, it's a way that you can do that. You can honor you know, the strengths you found and better understand how they developed and how to use them again in the future. I think the other thing that happens with storytelling, especially if you're storytelling you know, with others who have similar experiences to you, is that it you know, it can remind you about, you know, why it is that you got into your profession to begin with. So if you are a nurse, for example, and you're talking to another nurse about everything that you've been through and they understand because they've been through the same thing, it's really common that that conversation ends up evolving into a place of also remembering, you know, what it is that they went into nursing to accomplish you know, what their fundamental values are and what their goals were. And, you know, I'm not saying it's all roses in that, you know, there are times when people might feel like, oh, did I make a bad choice? I mean, this was really brutal. Like, who would want to live through this? And that's a normal feeling. You know, this was extremely disturbing for many, many people. But despite that, it's remarkable how many people will also in the same storytelling say that I'm so glad I was able to do something. I'm so glad I was able... And it might be small things sometimes too, because many times the care is futile. There are 
many instances where because of the nature of the disease itself, clinicians who are used to being able to regularly save patients had no tools at their disposal that they could use. The usual tools were either not available or they just didn't work. And so to find meaning and to find something where they felt like they were fulfilling their mission as a physician or a nurse or a housekeeper or anybody in that role means that you might have to switch in other places. So it might be facilitating a conversation with a loved one over, you know, an iPad and Zoom because they couldn't visit in the hospital. It could be, you know, trying to find a way to get a patient out onto one of our decks to see sunshine, you know, for a day. It could be a variety of other things, you know, helping getting them to a window so they can see their dog outside. And, you know, finding meaning in those ways, which is very different than how they're accustomed to finding meaning. And, you know, through those stories, you can find those nuggets and you can appreciate those moments. Whereas if you don't stop and do that, the days, every day is so dense with so many of those micro moments. You never stop and really appreciate the impact that might have had on a patient or a family. And so I think, you know, by sharing the stories, there's a higher likelihood that somebody will point that out if you're not seeing it Mm -hmm. and that you will notice it if you hadn't before. You know, putting my white coat on, having you say what kind of advantage there is to tell a story to build your resilience makes it more likely that some people that are very sort of not going to dwell in the past and just move forward, it might bring people to the table to be more likely to do that and then build their resilience more. Because there is something about our profession that makes you say, oh, you can't dwell on the on the bad part or you can't feel bad. You just have to go forward and charge ahead, right? And at least my generation. So Definitely. Like, yeah. yeah. So this is this gives it a purpose that might actually entice more people to participate. That's a very right. Wise. Well, and we know we know that when leaders are a little bit more vulnerable, that uh, younger faculty and and trainees and other people who are more junior are more likely to reach out for help. And if it's your very own leader, they might also be more likely to reach out to that leader for help because they'll have increased confidence that that leader will understand. Whereas if that leader feels like they always have to be the strong, tough one and they never share any of that, then there's a wall that's up. I mean, you know, and so it's harder to approach that person because you're comparing yourself to them and you have this false belief that they don't struggle and that they've never, they've never had some of the same feelings you have. Mm-hmm. And that's gets to what you were saying that you had, prepared a number of our departments already with the peer counseling, the peer-to-peer support, that that helps break down that barrier. That's the feedback we're getting. And it's, you know, it's something that is evolving nationwide. Joint Commission is interested in peer support programs. You know, the, the information, the data, you know, is growing over time. So my hope is that eventually that will be something that is rolled out across our whole health system, as well as all the other health systems in our country. That's excellent. Well, I'm in full support of that, Brenda. Let's get our heads together. (laughs) All righty, let's do it. Uh, So would you say there are any silver linings that have come from this pandemic? I think, you know, we kind of been talking some about silver linings along the way, just things that people have been grateful for. I think that it will really be different for different people. Some people really have taken this event, this this pandemic to think about where they're at in their life 
is this, am I on track where I want to be? You know, should I be changing something? So, you know, for some people, they might decide, you know, I've been thinking I want to move back to where my family is for years now. And this has really pointed out to me how important that is. And so I'm going to make that a priority as an example. Or I was waiting to retire to travel, but that seems silly. Like as soon as I can, I should start traveling or, you know, whatever. I want to have a child. I want whatever major life goals that you have. It might um, put them into a different perspective than you had before. Some people might feel more confidence, you know, because they now have been through something that they never imagined they would be able to successfully endure. And so just having endured that may give them confidence. You know, we've had all sorts of innovation on the science front that has occurred that will forever change all sorts of approaches to medical problems. We've had a huge revolution in how we communicate with each other using, you know, electronic platforms for meetings. And, you know, we've seen that in some subspecialties in medicine, it's worked really well and improved access to care. You know, in my own department, in the Department of Psychiatry, our no-show rates have gone down. And people who normally have to drive for a very long way can just, you know, immediately be on Zoom. And so it doesn't work in all situations and it doesn't have to be Zoom. It can be WebEx or, you know, another platform, but it does open up all sorts of opportunities in that regard, as well as having meetings without having to travel and recruitment for trainees and all sorts of other avenues that I can't imagine we're going to go back to exactly how we were before because everyone is suddenly now skilled in these tools, whereas before we weren't. And so it's much easier now to set those meetings up and be assured that people can manage the technology. So I think that that's forever transformed, you know, how we will be operating. And I imagine also that there'll be more people working remotely on a more regular basis because we've seen certain ways in which that can be very effective. You know, those are just a few. There's so many. But I think... And I think just as I mentioned before, our level of appreciation, I'm hoping that we are able to maintain some of that. We'll remember these days and maintain some feelings of like, oh, wow, I really am so happy I get to just go visit family or go to a restaurant or whatever it might be. Well, if you think about the Great Depression of 1929 and how much impact it had on at least my parents' generation, that was a long lasting impact. So I'm very good point. I had not thought about that. Well, to wrap up, what good do you think will come out of this pandemic? You know, and this is my hope, you know, I, of course it's impossible for me to predict, but I do hope two things. One is, you know, I think that health systems in general and certainly our health system was aware of the you know, importance of mental health and wellness of our workforce. I think there's more and more data emerging that demonstrates that's how you give good patient care. That when you have a healthy workforce, both physically and mentally, your patients do better. And this is makes good business sense to really pay attention to this aspect of the well-being of our health force. And I'm hoping that this might even accelerate some of those efforts. You know, I know they were already underway, but I'm hoping that some of those efforts will be accelerated. And then, you know, as I mentioned before, I'm just hoping that we will live with a renewed sense of appreciation. And time will tell. We'll see if that's true. That's for sure. I mean, one thing about the need and and appreciation of emotional well-being support is the concern that they're not enough providers. What is going to change in that? arena? Wow. You know, that's, that's a really difficult question to answer. And 
you know, it's an interesting thing because I think in it's uneven, right? I think in some areas we have not enough providers. And then I know we also have providers that are worried about job security too, because there's some places in which utilization's gone down or other models of care are being implemented that might reduce the need for some providers. So I think that there's concern on both sides. And it means we need to work smarter and more efficiently, right? We need to make sure that everybody is working at the top of their license, that we are training. I think the best example would be, you know, the peer support we've been talking about. Clearly, there's not enough mental health providers for the need that we have. And so because of that, we have to be really smart. We have to prioritize. We know that, for example, if you have mild to moderate symptoms of anxiety or depression, self-help interventions can be helpful. Peer support interventions can be really helpful. So if we can better equip people to help each other and help themselves, then we can really save the mental health professionals for those who have the most severe problems, who really need that expert care. And, you know, that same model could be replicated in other areas as well. Just really thinking about how do we empower people better and then most strategically use the talent that we have for their talent. Well, that's an excellent way to end this talk. I want to thank you so much, Brenda. You are always just an incredible resource for all of us at, at UCLA and around the country. I know you do a lot of consulting and support for others outside of the uh, health system and you're a real gem. And I don't know if you have any final words that you'd like to share with us or wisdoms um, before we end this podcast? I'll just say it's a mutual admiration society. So I will thank you for your incredible support. You've always been a huge advocate and, you know, put money behind that and networking. And it's just, I can't tell you how much I've appreciated that. And, you know, that's a really good example of how we move forward in these partnerships. So thank you very much for having me today. Thanks. Yeah. It's always about the team. That's right. Thank you, Brenda. Thank you for tuning in to UCLA Live Well. For more information about today's episode and the resources mentioned, visit our website at healthy.ucla.edu backslash livewellpodcast. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Semo Healthy Campus Initiative Center at UCLA. To stay up to date with our episodes, subscribe to UCLA Live Well on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get to know us a little better and follow us at Healthy UCLA. If you think you know the perfect person for us to interview next, tweet your idea to us, please. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and we hope you join us for our next episode as we explore new perspectives on health and well-being.